So we are uh, today, and today only, back in the Psalms. Pastor Ed is going to be giving the communion message today, and then next week we'll go back to our, our regular schedule for the month of October. Uh, and it's, in a way, it's easy for me to parachute in and out of the Psalms because these uh, poems are standalone units. It's been maybe a month or so since we were in the class on the Psalms, and I don't know if you remember it or not, but the last one we did was Psalm 77. Today, we're going to do Psalm 79 because Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm, <laughs> and, and I don't think I was going to get through that in one lesson, so we're going to save that for next month, the Lord willing. Uh, but it's okay because the psalms are not, uh, the, the order of the psalms, uh, I, I hold the view that the order of the psalms for the most part is not inspired, um, that this is a collection of poems. In fact, if you, if you were to pick up a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not that they're readily available, but if you did, after you get to Psalm 90 from, say, Psalm 91 to 150, they are all in totally different order. Um, and so there's been different traditions in and Judaism as to what arrangement. Now, in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is called the second psalm, and that's the only one that's numbered. Uh, so um, anyway, it's, it's okay to read them out of order, but there is a reason why in, uh, in ancient days that they were put in the order that they are. There are some connections, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but anyway, enough of that little introduction. Let's uh, read together Psalm 79. And then we'll work through our material today. Psalm 79 begins with the heading, A Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. God add blessing to the reading of his word. This is a difficult psalm to read and appreciate in some ways. There's great pain. There's what sounds like vengeful praying too, uh, but this is sacred scripture, 
and there are good things for us to learn from this portion. Someone I was reading this week commented that the Psalms seem to give us not only words to write in thank you notes to God, they also give us words to fill in complaint forms to God. <laughs> and uh, in a way, this Psalm is, is kind of like this. This is a Psalm of lament. So if you come, to me, come with me to your handout and on that front side, we'll talk firstly about what kind of Psalm this is, the genre. This is a, it's a lament, and more specifically, it's a penitential lament for the nation. By penitential, we mean that there is a repentance, a confession of sin that's being mentioned. There, there are a number of psalms where David, or in this case, the whole nation, is said to pray to God for forgiveness. Uh, and there, there's no debate amongst commentators that Psalm 79 is a lament and that it's written for the whole nation. And it's after it's one of its most staggering defeats, and what seems to be in view is the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. Um, the lament is corporate. It's, it, there's actually no reference to the individual. There's no I or me. It's always us and, and we. Uh, in verses 4, 8, 9, 13, you'll see the we and the us that's used. Uh, it explicitly confesses sin in verse 9, like the end of verse 9, deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. And, and even implicitly at times admits it, like in verse 5, when he says, uh, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Uh, which implies that God is upset with us, and rightly so. Um, and yet, there's also the sins of the nations, which are focused on too. Um, the psalm ends with, in verse 13, the psalm ends with a vow of thanks, that is a vow to give a thank offering uh, continuously or continually, which is a very common feature in laments that after, Lord, get us out of this trouble, and when we're done, we will give thanks to you. We'll give public acknowledgement at the altar for what you have done. Uh, now, if you think about it, when, if, if this is about the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, there is no more altar. It is impossible for them to bring a thank offering unless God in his time restore them. And, and, of course, that would happen some 70 years, uh, decades later, you would have the, the altar restored and the nation giving thanks for the Lord's deliverance. So the, what's the, the setting and the, the usage uh, of this psalm? That should be Roman numeral 2 there in your handout. The setting and the usage. Well, we know that this is by an Asaphite. It, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. Uh, psalm 73 to 83 uh, are all said to be by Asaph. Now, he was the chief musician in the days of David, who was appointed over the musicians in the sanctuary at the tabernacle. His descendants were very active in ministry, even when the temple was restored in 536. The Asaphites uh, are active there. This is one of those spots, and we've seen a few others of these, where the name Asaph does not seem to refer to the individual in David's day, but to one of his descendants. Uh, that this happens occasionally. I mean, Asaph in David's day, this is 400 years before the events that are described here in Psalm 79. Um, so we have to bear that in mind when you're reading this section, it says by Asaph, it might be literally the one individual or it might be one of his descendants who were uh, involved in composing and leading in music. So the background to this psalm is, of course, the fall of Jerusalem, verses 1 through 3 describe the destruction of the holy city and the defiling of the temple. Mostly it focuses on how the people were suffering more than the infrastructure suffering. 
Now, the Babylonians actually invaded Jerusalem three times over a 20-year period. The first time was in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel was taken away in captivity. And uh, then there was another time, I don't have it in your notes, another time in 597, uh, they came in, they just partially destroyed the city, and they defiled the sanctuary. And then in 586, on the 9th of Ab, Ab is one of the months in the Jewish calendar, uh, they raised the temple and completely obliterated uh, the city. And um, those, that great downfall is described a number of places in the Old Testament. One of them is 2 Kings 24 to 25. The 9th of Ab, that was this year, I believe, in July, uh, it is uh, one of the most solemn days in, in Jewish tradition. And one of the great ironies of history is that when General Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it was on the 9th of Ab, uh, which just reinforced the, you know, the, the awfulness of what the nation had gotten into. Uh, so that is today, still within Judaism, a, a great day of mourning. And so this is one of the songs that was written out of the, the first destruction of the temple. Turn over, the, turn over your handout to the inside. Uh, and uh, there, there was another psalm we studied uh, a couple months ago, Psalm 74, that also grew out of this event. I want you to flip back to Psalm 74 briefly with me, and you'll... Uh, you might recall that, Psalm 74, verse 1, O oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you've purchased of old, which you've redeemed. Uh, verse, verse 3, turn your footsteps towards the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. And uh, uh, the Psalm, Psalm 74, focuses more on the infrastructure damage, particularly the temple, and not just infrastructure but the defiling of God's holy place. Psalm 79 mentions that but it focuses more on the people who are suffering, uh, the, the, those who are casualties and then the, the survivors as well. The placement of this psalm in the uh, tradition uh, that's been passed down to us, it is in the third book of the psalms, Psalm 73 to 89. Most of these are not by David, there's uh, maybe one or two that are but mostly these are written by others, and, and actually I think only a few of them are from the time of David. Most of them are from a later era. There is something interesting about Psalm 77, 78, 79, and uh, all the, uh, actually through, uh, uh, in fact there's a mistake there. Uh, it should say 77 to 80, not 77 to 90. Psalm 77 to 80 all make reference to shepherding. I, uh, Psalm 77, uh, verse 20, has a little reference to that. Uh, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And then Psalm 78, which we are delaying for next month, uh, in verse 70, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the, the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. And then Psalm 79, verse 13, which we read a moment ago, so we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. And one more we'll look at, Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. 
Isn't that, isn't that interesting? These are all separate poems. They're all written separately. But one reason it seems that they've been placed side by side is there's this shepherding theme that, that, runs, uh, that runs through them. Um, uh, so another interesting connection between Psalm 78 and Psalm 79, uh, number three in your notes there, Psalm 78 closes by talking about David building the temple or getting ready to build the temple in Zion. Uh, if you look back at Psalm 78, verse 67, he, that is God, also rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights like the earth which he has founded forever. So Psalm 78 uh, closes by talking about what David did in bringing the tabernacle to Jerusalem, and then Psalm 79 begins by talking about the destruction of that place 400 years later. That's a fascinating connection. Um, Michael Wilcock in his commentary, which by the way is a great, if you're looking for get a good commentary in the Psalms. One I enjoy very much is by Michael Wilcock, and I believe it's called The Message of the Psalms. In Psalm 78, David has come to the throne, and his rule as a shepherd king promises to end the centuries of folly and evil. But in Psalm 79, four more centuries have gone by, and the Davidic monarchy has itself come to an end, mired in the self-same folly and evil it was supposed to remedy. Uh, I've noted to you, with you before that the Psalms often switch between celebrations and tragedies. And, and as you go, especially through this middle portion of the Psalm, 73 to 90, you see this quite often. You'll have a Psalm of great joy and great thanks followed by a Psalm of terrible misery. <laughs> and I think this is intentional as well because our experience in this life is not all constantly one thing or the other. It is very often oscillating between these two kinds of experiences. Well, uh, let me make some observations about uh, the verses before we uh, talk about the outline uh, and go through the visual outline. Um, Psalm 79, the style of it is kind of unpredictable. You, you can even maybe see in your English Bible that some of these verses are longer than others. Now, it, it may depend on how your Bible is formatted. Uh, you may not be able to see it as easily, but um, in the Hebrew text, you have some verses that are quite long, like verses 1, 8, 10, and 13, uh, whereas there's shorter verses, there's more shorter verses, and, and it's, it's unpredictable. It's, you know, there are some poems where it's kind of predictable. You know, a new section starts off with a long verse, and then everything's short, and the next section is a long verse, and it doesn't work that way in, in this psalm. It's, it's intentionally imbalanced. It's an artistic imbalance that I, I think reflects the emotional state of the musicians. Uh, and as people are, the survivors of the fall of Jerusalem are in mourning and chaos. Uh, there is a, a lot of shifting of pronouns in the, uh, in the psalm. Here's your language lesson for the day. Pronouns are words that take the place of nouns, right? So, so you've got... Uh, uh, you've got a lot of they and them at the beginning of the psalm. They did this. They defiled the temple. They killed us. And then in verse 4, we finally get us and we. Uh, and then it's back to they and them. And then ultimately, you praying to God. Um, but the, see, the crisis is not just about us versus them, although most of the verses kind of 
bandy back and forth between us and them, but you are versus us. You have been against us, God. God has sovereignly been behind the invasion that the Babylonians brought. The Babylonians were evil, godless people, and they did wicked, terrible things when they overthrew Jerusalem. And yet, they were the instrument of God. And in the end, the prayer is really directed at him. I wouldn't say that there's anger directed at the Lord, but there's a recognition that the Lord is angry at Israel. And uh, in this psalm, Israel comes to terms to some degree with its own sins, but is also concerned about, how about them now, these Babylonians? It's not like they're pure and they're godly and they're doing the right thing. They were doing wrong things. And yet it was sovereignly part of God's plan. So the pronoun shifting is an interesting part of this psalm. Um, Psalm 79 has a lot of scriptural references within it. Uh, And either, either it means that Psalm 79 is borrowing phrases from other psalms, or other scriptures are borrowing phrases from Psalm 79. Um... Uh, well, I, won't, I have nine points, parallels listed, and I don't want us to go through all of those, but maybe a few of them would be useful. So if you look at uh, verse 1 here in Psalm 17, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance, they've defiled your holy temple, they've laid the ruins, Jerusalem in ruins. Let's, let's, look, at, uh, let's look at Micah 3, verse 12. We'll look at Micah first because he came before the days of Jeremiah. Uh, so you think, okay, where's Micah? Uh, so if you get past Daniel... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah comes after. Or you can cheat and use your phone, and then uh, (laughs) you'll find it even quicker. (laughs) I remember one day I was speaking at another church, and I was reading my text. And, you know, we preachers talk to ourselves when we're talking to you. I think Pastor Ed can attest to that. And I'm, I'm sitting there reading my text, and in my peripheral vision, I see this young man in the corner flipping his, through his phone. And I thought, is he not listening? Uh, well, isn't he? And then I kind of just glanced around later and saw that most people didn't have a printed Bible. Most of them were reading their Bibles on their phone, which is totally fine. In fact, you're doing something very, that's scrolling. You know, you're treating the Bible like a scroll. So that's, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Anyway, I had you turn to Micah 3, verse t- uh, 12. Uh, Look at this prophecy in Micah 3, verse 12. Remember, Micah is written uh, in the days of Isaiah. This is about 100 or so years before the fall of uh, uh, the days of the Babylonian invasion. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a, there's the phrase, a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will uh, will become high places of a forest. So there's uh, that phrase, a heap of ruins, which has a parallel for us, uh, at least conceptually. Jerusalem is in ruins. Uh, uh, Look with me, uh, come back to Psalm 79, and look at verses 6 and 7. Here's a prayer of judgment on the Babylonians and the other nations who were involved in that invasion. Pour out your wrath upon the nations which which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Now look at Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah is uh, alive during the invasion, the Babylonian invasion. And verse 25 
of his 10th chapter says, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, and on the families that do not call your name. For they've devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. Somebody is quoting somebody. <laughs> Either the psalm is quoting Jeremiah, uh, or, uh, which I think is likely because when Jeremiah writes these verses, Jerusalem has not yet fallen. So it seems like Psalm 79 is quoting the words of the prophet here, which is, uh, uh, you know, helps us to understand that this prayer that is being made is not born out of their uh, vengeful imagination. They're actually using the words of prophecy uh, to frame their prayers in response to what's taken place. Well, perhaps later you could go through some of those, uh, the other listing of verses and the parallels to other psalms and other passages. Uh, it's, this, is a, this psalm is rich with Scripture. There are parts of this psalm that may bother us, but it is a very scripture-full psalm. So the bothering part is something with us, <laughs> as opposed to something with the text. And that leads me to letter D. There is a bit of awkwardness when we read about, oh Lord, kill them, destroy them, they're bad. You know, we are perhaps bothered by the psalms, psalmist's bold cries, oh God, how long, you know? Um, and then recounting events that God already knows about. I mean, God knows what happens, didn't he? And, um, uh, but, you know, I think maybe part of our feeling that this is awkward for us to rehearse to God what's happened is maybe we tend to view prayer more as task-oriented thing or that it's a, a job to be done, to get things done. We sometimes think of prayer as a way to get things done. Now, th now prayer is work. Intercessory prayer is work, but it's not only work. It's also about relating and communicating. So if, if you think of prayer only as a way to get something accomplished, then you're going to feel uncomfortable with the prayers that are just tend to be more emotional outpouring uh, of the heart. You know, if you, you wouldn't, if you got fired from your job, you wouldn't come home and not tell your spouse about it. Because, you, you, you know, the thinking should, you know, hopefully, yeah, I mean, the, the thinking should not be, well, should, well, he can't do anything or she can't do anything about it, so why talk to them about it? I mean, that's, that's not the way relationships work, you know. So um, the purpose of prayers are not only about getting things done, it does include that, but it's also about communing and relating to God uh, by the unburdening of our hearts. Uh, there are some, I wish I had more room in my uh, notes to share some other things. Let me see if I can uh, quickly recollect a few of them. Um, if you look uh, down in uh, verse 11, uh, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. The groaning of the prisoner, this is the same expression used back in Exodus when it says that the Lord heard the groaning of the sons of Israel as they were in Egypt, and he chose to deliver them and bring them out. Even though they were sinful, they were not, you know, great worshipers of the Lord during their years in Egypt, but the Lord had compassion on them. And so there's appealing to that, Lord, you delivered us from that great calamity a millennium earlier, deliver us again, uh, even though our sins are partly, are, are largely to blame for what's taken place. Um, in verse 8, uh, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Now, I'm curious, does anyone have a version where that reads a little bit differently in verse 
8. Do any of you, yeah, Sandy, why don't you read yours? Our former iniquities, yeah. And so the, the issue is that the Hebrew word means the former ones do not remember the iniquities of the former ones. So is that our former sins, our past sins, or is it the sins of our ancestors? And so commentators and translators are split as to what to do with that. I, I think the forefathers is a good idea here, good rendering, uh, because when, see, the, the reason that God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem was there had been eight centuries of Israel breaking the covenant of Mount Sinai. And there was an accumulation of guilt that had just piled, piled up. And I mean, this, this last generation were really wicked people, not, not the psalmist. There were godly people left, like the psalmist here, and the sons of Asaph, Jeremiah and Baruch, and the, there was a remnant. But the uh, majority of them were w well, well worthy of judgment. But they had, they, they had been stockpiling, as it were, judgment. They had not turned away from the sins that God had warned them through the prophets that would bring this catastrophe upon them. Well, let me uh, talk about the structure of the psalm. Uh, it's hard to outline Psalm 79 because there's several overlapping asymmetrical movements. And by asymmetrical, I mean... They're, they're not, it's not like some psalms are really uh, balanced, like three verses, three verses, three verses. Those are a preacher's delight. Those are great. They're really easy to break apart. This one's not so easy to break apart. It's not even in that way. And so a lot of different outlines have been proposed. Um, it's, it's difficult to discern what was the structure that the psalmist had in mind because it's very emotional language and there's a lot of repetition. Uh, but we can note some things, like verses 1 to 4 are entirely lament. That is, they, they're not actually asking for anything. They're just describing what's happened. They did this to us, and we've been experiencing this. That's verses 1 to 4. Whereas verses 5 to 12 is mostly requests. God, help us. God, stop this. God, judge them. Occasionally, there's some laments because this has happened to us and that has happened to us but mostly verses 5 to 12 are prayer requests. Verses 5 and 10 ask questions. Look at verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? There's three questions in that, uh, in that verse. Um, and then verse 10 also asks a question. Uh, why should the nation say, where is their God? Um, these are rhetorical questions, but uh, they lament why things must be the way that they are, and each of these questions then is followed by a set of prayers that ask for judgment to come. Verse 13 is very different from everything else. It's this vow of thanks. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. That is a very different tone than everything else. So there's still hope. There's still this, this faith that God is our shepherd even though he has stricken us that God has not abandoned us. Yes, the covenant made at Mount Sinai is broken, but there's still the covenant God made with us through Abraham. That's not broken. He's still our shepherd, even though we have failed and wandered away. So the outline that I propose sees five segments to the psalm, and, and the middle three, numbers two, three, and four, kind of go together as requests that can be linked. So there's an opening lament, there's prayers for judgment, prayers for forgiveness, prayers for judgment, 
and then finally a promise of a thank offering. So why don't you go with me now to the back page and there's a visual outline chart. We'll use this to walk through each verse a little more sequentially. There's a purpose statement at the top. In the aftermath of Babylon's overthrow of Jerusalem, this psalm laments the holy city's destruction, uh, pleading for God's forgiveness and restoration and for judgment on her godless enemies. This is written, I think, in the 6th century by either, there could be someone in that era named Asaph, that's not impossible at all, or more, more likely, I think, a descendant of Asaph, an Asaphite, sometime after the destruction in 586. Over on the far left side, there's a list for the headings. There's really, really one or two, depending on how you parse it out. It's as a psalm of a soft. So the word for psalm is a common word that seems to mean music that's made for instrumentation. So there, some songs are, in, are a cappella. This is one intended to have instruments. And the author is Asaph, or, and I think that is referring to an Asaphite. All right, move over into the, the left, to the right of that. The opening lament in verses 1 to 4 is about the fall of Jerusalem. The opening address is, O oh God. In the Hebrew text, it's just God. Uh, and sometimes the opening address in prayers of lament is a little bit, O oh, oh Lord our God, or O uh, oh God, you who keeps Israel. But here it's just one single word. God, and then there's the recounting of the aftermath of the invasion, how the sacred city was destroyed in the remainder of verse 1. They have, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Now, it says the nations, but, you know, and you read Second Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, Chronicles, it's primarily the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the great power that did it. But the Babylonians were a cosmopolitan kingdom. They had mercenary groups who were in there. And there were other nations around Israel that were just delighted to see what was happening. The Edomites were thrilled at what was happening. In fact, there's an entire prophetic book, the book of Obadiah, uh, written about God to judge the Edomites for the way they gloated against Jerusalem on that day. And the way that they participated in and killing refugees who were trying to run away from Jerusalem. So there were Edomites, there might have been Ammonites and Amalekites and otherites who were sort of on the periphery of all of that. And, taking, and then after the Babylonians leave, you know, you have these scavengers come in and uh, take what they want. So the sacred city has been destroyed in verse 1. And then you've got all these casualties in verses 2 to 3 that are just left unburied. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. Uh, Now you think, well, I thought the people of Jerusalem were wicked people. Uh, Yes, they, they were largely, but there were also godly people who got caught up in the judgment, who were killed or injured and dispossessed. I mean, think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the good guys, and he suffered tremendously through this invasion. His life was spared. The psalmist's life was spared. Uh, and there were other godly people, too, who, who died. Um, in fact, the, the word, the flesh of your godly ones, the Hebrew word is chasid. Chasid. Now, I, I've been t- making you spit out this Hebrew word chesed. It means loving kindness or loyalty. Chasid 
is the noun for someone who is loyal. You've, you've heard the, the, the word Hasidic Jews are those who think themselves to be ultra-loyal. That comes from this word here. Uh, Verse 3, the lack of burial con- references continue. They poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them, which is a, a, a grave disgrace. Uh, I mean, we, we can't not do something with the bodies of our loved ones. It's, and if, when, when bodies are left to decay because there's been a tragedy or a disaster and you can't get in there, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. You, you hate to find the remains of your loved ones destroyed. But in this case, I mean, the enemies aren't going to bury them. They don't care. And there's not enough people, survivors left to do it. And, and plus, there's still a Babylonian force around Jerusalem that's threatening people and menacing people. Uh, it, it's, it's a tremendous disgrace. And so in verse 4, there's an admitting of the disgrace of defeat. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those round about us. This shame has been heaped upon them. And part of the shame, you know, there's the taunt that the invaders would say in verse 10, where's their God? <laughs> where's their God? And, and I'm sure they even thought that when they went into the temple itself and destroyed the temple and there's no idol in there, you know, and the Shekinah glory had left the temple long before the invasion came. Uh, and so there's this, this shame. We, the people of God, the, we the, who've been brought here by the Lord now, all the glory is gone, and we just have disgrace upon disgrace upon us. So that's the opening lament. And now the prayers begin in verses 5 through 12. These are mostly petitionary prayers. They're asking for things, and they're asking for judgment on enemies and for forgiveness of sins. So it starts off with prayers for the judgment on the invaders in verses 5 to 7. And there's another little word of lament in verse 5, the opening lament, that there's, this is just too much divine anger for us to be experiencing. That's what's implied. How long, O Yahweh, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? We often think of jealousy as a bad thing, and it often is a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. There are times when a righteous jealousy is called for. Uh, and um, the, so the, 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 the thought, though, is that this is too much. It's, it, it, we, we plead with you for this to stop. But now, actually, they don't pray for the, the anger, the, the judgment to stop. They pray for it to be redirected. So verses 6 to 7, here's an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of a judgment, for wrath to be redirected. Take the wrath that's been on us and put it on our enemies. The nations are willfully ignorant of God, verse 6, pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. I mean, the Babylonians, the Edomites, and whatever other peoples were in, involved in this, that these were not, it's not like these were, you know, the policemen of the world who came to stop the evildoers of Israel. I mean, Israel was evil, but these were also very, very evil people. Uh, they, they knew about Yahweh and, and could care less. We're not interested in knowing him. We're not interested in serving him. Uh, and actually, you know, the prayer here, as we said before, this is not something they made up. This is the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah foresaw that God would both use the Babylonians as his instrument and also judge the Babylonians for their evil. So they're really reflecting the sentiment of Scripture in what they say here. 
Verse 7, the nations have sinfully destroyed God's people. They have devoured Jacob. Notice that the name Jacob is used often in the Psalms when the nation of Israel is called Jacob. Remember, Jacob, his name was changed later to Israel. So when, when his original name is used, it's often describing the nation in its state of weakness. And that is certainly true in this case. Can't get any weaker than this. It's like they've been gobbled up and left as just a heap of ruins. Now, uh, of course, the psalmist knows that Israel has been sinful too. In fact, honestly, the reason God has been so angry is because of the covenant unfaithfulness of the nation as a whole. Yes, there have been loyal ones and godly ones, Hasid, but the majority of them have not been Hasid. Uh, they've been covenant breakers. So here are prayers for forgiveness of Israel's sins. There's a prayer for release from, the, from previous sins. And I think verse 8, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers, the, the former people of Israel. Uh, so uh, there had been sin stacked upon sin after sin for generation and generation. Lord, let, let that now be done with. Um, release us from that. And then there's a plea for divine compassion in their lowly estate, as verse 8 continues. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us. Let your compassion confront us. We've been confronted by your wrath. Now confront us with your mercy. And verse 8 finishes, for we are brought very low. Verse 9, there's a plea for help and forgiveness for the sake of God's reputation. These two lines are parallel with each other. Help us. O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. God, you have made a, you've gained a reputation for yourself as a redeemer, as a forgiver. You did this for us a thousand years ago when you brought us out of Egypt. We were steeped in idolatry, but you, you redeemed us and forgave us. And in the days of the judges, we were in decrepit state and you forgave us. So, Continue on with your reputation of being a God of forgiveness and bring about to us restoration. Then verses 10 through 12, it switches back to prayer for judgment, for judgment on the invaders. Verse 10 is another opening lament that there's just too much international shame. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Uh, that phrase is used uh, about a dozen times in the Psalms about, you know, these, these are the things that my enemies say about me personally when, when I seem to be God-forsaken. And now the nations see this about Israel, and Israel's God, well, what kind of God do they have? They didn't stop us. So there's an imprecatory prayer, a prayer for judgment, for divine vengeance. For, uh, there's a plea for the vengeance to be uh, come about for those who were slain. So verse 10 continues, Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed uh, and then uh, verse 11 a plea for the uh, a plea to help the imprisoned survivors let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power preserve those who are doomed to die so there were people who were literally prisoners there was a huge portion of the jerusalem's population that was dragged away into babylonian captivity literally prisoners there are other people who are just left to fend for themselves in Jerusalem and are pretty much doomed to die. I mean, you read Lamentations. I mean, it's, 
the, the days right after that were desperate. I mean, didn't know where food was going to come from, where water was going to come from. Everything was topsy-turvy. There were social upheavals. Like, you know, there were slaves, for instance, who had survived this, and now they were overlording it over whoever they could find. Um, violence, Israelites killing Israelites, uh, plus the enemy oppressors still around. Very, very dire time. So then in verse 12, there's a plea to return complete judgment on the godless enemies. Verse 12, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Sevenfold, of course, seven is often a token number for completeness. Uh, full judgment. Let them fully receive back the kind of thing that they've, and notice that it's not just that they have reproached us and scoffed at us, they've scoffed at you. When they say, where's their God? They're mocking God as much as they are the Israelites. So, Lord, it's, it's not just us who are hurting. It is your glory in the earth that has been diminished, your reputation uh, by this sovereign act. So, act so as to restore an understanding of who you are. And, you know, and God would answer this prayer, although I think not in the way that they might have hoped, Jeremiah had laid out for them a map of time, a, a, a calendar, that it would be 70 years after the first invasion before they would come back. And uh, then Daniel gives them uh, another calendar that, yes, they'll go back to the land, but it'll be 70 times seven years before the kingdom is restored to Israel in some way. And that brings us to the time of Jesus and his first and second comings. So God will answer this prayer, but perhaps not in the time that they had hoped. There is a closing vow of thanks in verse 13, uh, a pledge to give thanks. There's a confession of trust in God as their shepherd at the beginning of the verse. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture, wow, that's, that's amazing. They still are holding on to the notion that the Lord is their shepherd. Really, I mean, they are the ones who, like Isaiah would use the, the phrase, all we like sheep have gone astray. I mean, the shepherd had not failed. They are the ones who had failed. Um, but uh, the flock will be gathered again. They have faith that God is still their shepherd. And, and then there's the pledge to offer endless thanks for deliverance. Uh, the, the verse ends, we'll give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. So when it says we'll give thanks to you forever, this isn't talking about heaven. This is about here on the earth, forever doesn't always mean eternity. Sometimes it just means endlessly, continually. And uh, you have to tell from context which is meant. The, the phrase give thanks is very often used in the Psalms for bringing a thank offering. So when this is all done, when you restore us, when the temple is back, when we can come bring offerings, we will voluntarily recognize and remember this event and tell the generations to come what you did and how you brought us back. And so they did. And in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple is restored and worship is resumed and there would be times to remember uh, what God had done. And of course, the, the deliverance that the Lord would bring to Israel was um, in, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah was just partial. Um, the full restoration wouldn't come until Messiah came. Uh, when Messiah would come six centuries after this psalm is written and uh, proclaim liberty to the captives and 
deliverance from bondage and, and show them that the, the greatest deliverance that Israelites need and that Gentiles need is deliverance from our own sins that chain us and ensnare us and put us under the wrath of God. Uh, and um, when we see the fullness of God's plan and His restoration, which He's begun, which will be completed, that, that gives us cause for great thanks. And we want to tell every generation about the good things the Lord has done for us.